The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus, there is always reason to rejoice. Why don't we, let's pray before we jump into Philippians 4. Father, I'm thankful again for this morning. I'm thankful for uh, my friends here. I'm thankful that uh, you have given us air to breathe and lungs to breathe it and that we are able to be here and we we know it's not by accident. I ask that you would, by your spirit, work and move in our lives in ways that uh, you want, that you'd accomplish your purpose in us and through us this morning. We love you. We pray this for uh, your fame and in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it, it, is, it is a joy, actually, to be back. Uh, I don't know Though, if after this one, I'll be invited back again, we'll see. Uh, they, they say in polite conversation, you shouldn't talk about religion, politics, or money. Uh, but preaching's not always polite. Okay, so today, uh, we're looking at Philippians 4, and we're actually going to be talking a little bit about money. Okay, so uh, Matt called me earlier this week, and he said, just so you know, I, I talked to uh, the Tri-City Church in the first week of January, also about money. So what Matt said is all good and true, and I actually, I'll blame him. He started it, okay? And now we're going to, at the end of the month, look at what this text has to tell us about money in particular. And uh, here's, here's kind of the big idea, a thesis, or whatever you want to call it, of how we're going to spend our time here together in the next few moments. So here it is. When it comes to money, Christians say good riddance. Okay, when it comes to money, Christians say good riddance, and I'm going to unpack that for us in two ways, that ridding ourselves of money is good for us, and ridding ourselves of money is good for others. So ridding ourselves of money is good for us, and ridding ourselves for money is good for others. First, let's look at that first section about how, how, if it is true that Christians say good riddance to money, how is ridding ourselves of money good for us? Okay, Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. Paul writes this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So 
part of this passage is repeat from last week if you were here, but I, I didn't quite know exactly how to start because you need that first bit of Paul saying, I'm, I'm glad that you have revived your concern for me. I'm glad that you've given me this gift. And then he, he makes it really clear that he's saying, it's not that I'm glad that you gave me the gift because I needed it. I'm glad you gave me the gift because ultimately it's credit to your, your account. Paul is pleased with the financial giving of the Philippians. So I need you to imagine for a second the, the length and, and the great um, trial that it would have been for Epaphroditus to bring money to Paul in Rome. So imagine you're Epaphroditus, right? You always have to spell your name to people. They're like, how many pieces? Okay, fine. So you're Epaphroditus. You're in the church in Philippi. You, you hear of the Apostle Paul's need, and when you hear of his need, you as a church decide, like maybe it's Benevolent Sunday or something, which by the way, I didn't know that coming in, I promise. You hear that the Apostle Paul is in need, and you decide as a local body in Philippi, you're going to take a collection together to provide the needs for Paul. Well, here's the difference or the distance between Philippi and Rome. It's about 1,200 kilometers, so, so picture a journey walking from Vancouver to San Francisco, But then picture that instead of it just being on land, you actually have to take a boat. This would have been about a two-month journey for you, Epaphroditus, to take this money and commit yourself to providing for the needs of Paul. See, Paul's in a Roman prison, and Roman prisons, they didn't give you three square meals a day and all the clothing you needed. They just threw you in a pit or they threw you in a room, and however, whoever your friends were were going to be those who provided your needs the Philippians hear about this. They, they are moved to help Paul in his ministry, even though he's imprisoned. And Epaphroditus volunteers to be the one to go to Paul, take a two-month journey, risk himself to give him this gift. See, financial generosity was not something new even for the Philippians. Paul's saying, you're reviving your concern for me. He mentioned that earlier in my ministry. You were the only ones who gave to me when I was doing ministry in Thessalonica. So a little bit of mapping for you. Thessalonica's way closer to Philippi than Rome was. Thessalonica was like, I don't know, 150 kilometers. So that's just like here to Whistler. So, so when, when, when I was in Thessalonica, Paul says, you, you came and you gave me finances. You gave me what I needed a, a few times. So this is something that's in your track record. That was probably about 10 years previous to when Paul was writing this. So here's Paul's experience with the Philippians. Then in at least, at least two separate occasions in 10 years, the Philippian church went out of their way to care for the apostle Paul and his needs and when he was in prison and for his ministry when he was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. But he also uh, is so familiar with the Philippians giving that, that he was kind of braggy about it to other churches, right? Like he was pretty proud of the Philippians and their giving. Here, here's what he wrote in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 8. About five years before he wrote the book of Philippians, he wrote this to the church in Corinth. Uh, we want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So that's the province where Philippi is. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief 
of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, Paul is saying, look, these Philippians, it's not like they gave because they had all kinds of extra cash. They just were so joyful in the gospel when they heard of what the Apostle Paul was doing, planting churches, when they heard of the need of other places. They looked at their situation. They looked outside themselves, and their response out of joy was sacrificial, generous giving. And Paul's writing to the Corinthians, getting all braggy about it. See, look, the Philippians have a history of giving generously of their money. And here again, in our chapter, Philippians 4, the Philippian church is once again giving generously. But it's really key that we realize that Paul is pleased with the financial generosity of the Philippians, not because of what he receives. He's pleased with their giving because of what it gives to their credit, what the, the credit it gives to their account. So uh, verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That language of fruit that increases to your credit was technical economic language in the ancient world. So imagine um, you were given $5,000 of inheritance money and you have a financial advisor and your financial advisor says, here's three options that are before you. One, one you can spend that five grand on whatever it is that you might need or want in the moment. Your second option is to save it Um, just like put it under your bed or something and just keep it there safe so that in 20 years you'll have five grand still. Third option though, your advisor lets you know about, is that there's actually this account and this account is called uh, the increased fruit account. And in 20 years, if you put your $5,000 in this account, it's actually going to be worth $5 million. So, So there are your options. What would you like to do? And you, as an investor, decide, I'm going to take the increased fruit account, right? That's a better option. And now the advisor says, here's the good news. Sure, I get a little cut of that, but but I'm I'm not thanking you for putting the money in that account because of what I receive. I'm thanking you for doing it because look at how much better it is for you moving forward that you put your money in that account. This is what the Apostle Paul's saying to the Philippians is I'm thankful for your generosity, not because of what I get out of it, but because of how good it is for you that you've done this. It's to your benefit that you've done this. Or to put it another way, ridding ourselves of money is actually good for us. See, the Philippians gave their money for the cause of the gospel going forward, and the Apostle Paul's response was one of, that's a good decision for you. Which I think raises the question for us, right? Because what does it mean... That fruit increases to our credit if we're generous for the gospel uh, proclamation and propagation. The, the, The spread and the speaking of the gospel. What does it mean that it's good for us to give to the spread and speaking of the gospel? What 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 should we expect in return? What does it look like to have our credit increased? I think there's two answers that are usually given. One more popular in our cultural context, and one more biblical. Okay. So I'm going to give you the cultural one first, that that increased credit for our account, the most common view is basically summed up in the idea of you can't outgive God. And 
Well, it's true that if you give, God is going to provide for your needs. That's something he's promised to do for us. If you are a child of God, he's going to provide for your needs. So he's going to care for you. But oftentimes, the language of you can outgive God is motivation for us giving so that we receive more back financially, right? I'm going to give to this missions project because you can't outgive God. And I know I can give to missions and also buy the Lamborghini, right? Because you can't outgive God. See, the point's not about the Lamborghini. The point is the motivation behind the giving is one of I'm going to give so that I can receive more back in return. This is what the prosperity gospel thrives on. This mindset that all you have to do is sow a little seed and you will receive more back in the harvest than you planted in the first point. Guys like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and T.D. Jakes, they make a lot of money playing off of this idea that runs in people's mind that I can't outgive God. So if I just give this little bit of money here, he's going to overwhelm me. He's going to increase my account with all kinds of cash. Uh, there's actually a, a TV preacher by the name of Rod Parsley. Don't follow his ministry. He's going to try to steal your money. He, on Breakthrough TV, here's... Uh, he has a show called Breakthrough TV, and on his website, he, he had this uh, particular opportunity for you, okay? So I'm going to read it. God's about to sustain the greatest miracle your family has ever received. God is about to get you out from under the weight of your current financial crisis. What you do for the Lord's house, he will do for yours, says 1 Kings 17. So if you sustain the work of God, he will sustain you just as he provided these miracles of sustainment in 1 Kings 17. Activate your faith today, says Rod Parsley. Sustain breakthrough ministries with your best seed faith gift and watch God work a supernatural turnaround of the enemy's attack in your life. Your generous gift of $300 in support of Breakthrough will help Pastor Rod Parsley continue to preach the irrefutable and incorruptible word of God and provide help and hope to those in need around the world through our breakthrough television broadcast and Bridge of Hope Outreach. If you can't sow a seed of $300, then sow a seed faith gift of $100 now and commit to another $100 in the next two months. Whatever you can sow today will help Pastor Parsley reach the world of Jesus and will release the two blessings, which was the greatest miracle for your family and getting out of your financial weight. See? Give your seed gift, man. Do you need a miracle in your life? 300 bucks. If you give it to, to Rod Parsley and his breakthrough ministry, he's saying, look, just give me the $300, sow your faith seed gift, and you will just have all the miracles you could ever want. Do you have financial crisis in your life? You should, you, if you give money to the ministry, your, 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 incre- your credit will increase. The, the fruit will increase in your, your credit. You're, you'll be lifted out of your financial burden. Just, I mean, if you can't afford 300 it's okay. 100 now. Then just commit to do another hundred, two months from now. This is a very common way that in our contemporary culture, Christians view God responding to our financial giving. That if I give to the ministry of the gospel moving forward, God is going to provide more for me back than what I gave. He's going to increase my account. So is this what Paul's talking about? That Philippians, poor impoverished Philippians. I'm so happy that you gave generously because God's going to increase your account. Is that what he's saying? Or does he have a more eternal explanation for this idea of the fruit that increases to your credit? 
I'm going to argue that it's a more eternal view. I think it's what the Bible says, okay? Here's Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus is saying how we use our money is going to demonstrate if we're laying up treasures on earth or if we're laying up treasures on heaven. How you view the giving of your money and how you view the receiving of your money and where you're deciding to invest that money shows are you heavenly minded? Are, are, you, are you thinking towards the gospel going forward so people can hear about the saving work of Jesus Christ? Or are you laying up for yourselves treasures on earth? That your motivation behind your giving is going to demonstrate where your heart actually is. So Paul here is telling the Philippians, look, you're going to have an increased an increase in your credit. I don't think he's saying, look, I'm so glad you gave me money because now that means you get all kinds of money back. He's saying, I'm glad you gave me money because it says something about where your heart is. That even though you look at your financial statement and it's not as high as you want, when you hear about my need, when you hear about the gospel going forward, you are moved to give generously. And man, does that speak about where your heart is? It speaks about where you're laying up your treasure. And Paul's saying, look, that's just going to increase your account. That just shows you, that shows me, Paul says to the Philippians, where your mind actually is, where your commitment to following Jesus actually is. And that's only going to be good for you. This is a challenging word for us in our context though, right? Because I think... The temptation is, in our cultural context, for us to assume that, that God is going to overwhelm us financially if we are sacrificial towards his work. That, that, that's the common viewpoint in our culture today regarding money. So the question is, do we actually expect, expect this kind of temporal blessing? Like when we give, and we give generously, are we doing it because we expect God to give us back more than what we gave? Is our mind and our heart temporally based on the here and now, or is our mind heavenly based on seeing the gospel go forward so people can hear the saving news of Jesus Christ? What's our motivation in our giving? One of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is because I don't think we fully realize, myself included, I don't think we fully realize just how overwhelming the biblical support is to the idea that us having money is a dangerous thing. It's not a bad thing. Money's not bad, but it is dangerous. And, and we function in our day-to-day -day lives for the most part, assuming we have a handle on this. That, that, that we have it totally covered, that, that it's not actually a danger for us. And yet the Bible's consistent testimony is that money is actually a dangerous thing. So let me read a few passages for us because I want to try to persuade you that that's actually true. Luke 8, uh, verses 4 through 15, Jesus is teaching. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town to, after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. 
Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So he's going to explain the parable, what he meant by what's all the seed in the soil. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and they will not be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Here's Jesus' story. Sower sows seed, some of it grows, a lot of it dies out at certain stages, and one kind of seed on a certain particular kind of soil actually grows to the harvest. If you're a farmer, why do you sow seeds? Because you want to get the harvest. The the point is the harvest. Jesus is saying, look, when it comes to how people respond to my word, my teaching, how they respond to the gospel, the point is that they'll be saved, that they'll they'll, they'll be a part of the harvest, And then he gives three different examples of people who don't actually make it to the harvest. One, they hear the word, but the devil comes, snatches it away. They never actually believe the gospel. Another group of people, they believe the gospel the first time they hear it. But but in time of testing, there's not enough roots deep enough in the moisture that when the time of testing and the heat come, the the fruit just withers up and dies. And the third kind of soil is the one I want us to think about right now. Because this, this soil has... Uh, both good soil in it, but there's also thorns that are growing in the soil as well. So as the faith seed grows, as someone's response to the gospel, their belief in the gospel, their willingness to follow Jesus, as that life grows up, other things grow around that plant too that are thorns, that are choking out the plant. Jesus says part of those thorns are the riches of this world. Listen, Jesus is saying that riches are dangerous. They're not necessarily bad. Money's not sinful, okay? It's not sinful, but it is dangerous. It has the potential to choke out our devotion to Jesus. It can choke the plant out. Money's a danger for the Christian life. Luke 18, if you've been in church, you've probably heard this passage before too. A ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, 
said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, riches are dangerous. They have the potential to choke out faith. They have the potential to have us so infatuated with them that we will not be willing to give them up if it's what Jesus asks us to do. See, hear me again, money's not bad. Money's not sinful, but it is dangerous. And in our context, in our point in history, I just don't think we believe that. I think we we believe it's always a sign of God's blessing in our life, and the more we have, the better off we are, and it's, we, we show people how greatly blessed we are because of how much God has given to us, and we don't actually stop and think for a moment that maybe this is actually a great danger for me following Jesus. But it is. It's not, money's not sinful, money's not bad, but money is dangerous. I think it's actually one of the great dangers for our lives as Christians in Canada as middle-class citizens. It's the great thing we can put our hope and our comfort in Right? I know what it's like when you're looking at your bank account and things are more black than red. You think to yourself, I'm comfortable. And, and sure, that, that makes sense. But, but I am so prone to have my comfort and my security in my bank, bank statement rather than in my trust that God will sustain me. See, my, my mood can be dependent on whether things are going well for me financially or not. My, my, my disposition towards others are affected by my money, and yet I walk through my life not really thinking that money's actually a great danger for my discipleship. It's not bad, it's not sinful, but it is dangerous. I don't know if you've seen these um, YouTube videos of these guys who do this like skywalking thing, not like Luke Skywalker, that's a different movie, okay? But there's these guys in mostly Russia, which you know it's going to be crazy, right? <laughs> Sorry if you're from Russia. Uh, the, the skywalking activity where, where they're on top of buildings on ledges and they're walking on the ledges and they're doing like somersaults on the ledges and they're, they're doing handstands on the ledges and like gymnastic moves that I can't do on a mat in a gym, these guys are doing on the ledge of a building and people are watching these videos and they're saying, man, that's really cool. They can do that, right? Is that inherently evil what they're doing? No. Is it dangerous? Yeah. Of course it's dangerous. You hear the stories of people falling off the ledge and people dying who are trying to do this, but they have to really get that great selfie, right? Because maybe they'll get like 800 likes on Facebook. That would be amazing, right? They'd be like internet famous for like five seconds. So, so they risk their life for this. And we look at them and we say, man, it's not evil that they're doing it. It's not bad, but it is dangerous. Or, or fire, Right? Fire's not bad. Fire's, like, if cavemen have taught us anything, it's that fire good. Right? <laughs> they, they give you heat. It gives you the ability to cook things. Fire's good. It's a good thing God has given us. And yet, fire is very dangerous. Fire unchecked has the capacity to be completely destructive. Money's not evil. Money's not bad. But money is dangerous. For the Christian, it has the potential to choke out our faith. For the Christian, it has the potential to to steal our affections to the point that when Jesus says, give, we would rather go away than give up what we have. And yet I think in our context, we just don't believe that to be true. 
I don't think we believe that money is actually as dangerous as the Bible talks about it being. So the question is for us, how are we actually using our money? (laughs) When we think about the state of the earth right now, the state of the peoples of the earth, when we realize that there are millions of people outside of of these walls who, who do not know the name of Jesus, who do not know, they, they don't have hope for their salvation. When, when, when we hear about people who are going to go preach to these people or plant churches among these people, what, what does our heart's inclination do? Are we one that says, I, I want to give money to that so people can be saved? Or are we people who sit there and think, you know what, I don't know if I can give up anything quite yet. I'll pray that the Lord raises people to give, but I, I can't right now. I won't give right now. What, what is our, what's the disposition of our heart towards the propagation and proclamation of the gospel? Is, is our inclination, is our desire, is our motivation for that of, of giving away of our finances, even out of our poverty for the sake of people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ? Or do we think to ourselves, you know what? Money is just an evidence of God's blessing in my life. I'm going to sit here with it and God will provide the means for that another way. See, look, money's not bad, it's not evil, but it is dangerous. So now, look, if, if you're thinking to yourself, man, I want to give. You're, the next question in your mind might be something like, okay, what's the rule? Right? We love rules. Good rule followers, most Christians, right? We try to be. That's why everyone around us is like Christians. All they like to do is follow a bunch of rules. So what's the rule when it comes to our financial giving, right? Because in the Old Testament, they talked about tithing 10%. It's a mandatory thing for God's people. So what is it now? Well, uh, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 again. So Paul wrote to them earlier saying, look, the Philippians were really generous. They gave out of their poverty. Then in verse 7, Paul says, But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in love, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, which is giving financially like the Philippians did. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So what rule does Paul give the Corinthians in order to follow the example of the Philippians' generosity? 15%? 18%, 8%, what's the, what's the rule? Paul doesn't give a rule. Paul says, look, if, if you want, if you're motivated to give your money for the sake of others, just think to yourself about the gospel. Think about the fact that, that the son of God, who was unfathomably rich, became poor, lived his life, died on a cross for you so that you who were poor could become rich. Now, how much do you want to give? See, the rule here is that there is no rule. I am not going to stand here and say, you need to give a faith seed gift of $300 in order for you to be faithful in your Christian stewardship. I'm not saying that. 
I don't know what that number is for you. I can't put an, an actual number on what it's going to look like for you to live out this generosity. But the question is, is if you have this inclination in your heart to actually be generous to the promotion of the gospel because you believe that it actually is a demonstration that your heart is in heaven and not in the accumulation of things here, then the motivation for us should be the gospel. And when we think of how much to give, we shouldn't be thinking, well, what's the number that like my neighbor wants me to write down? Or what's the number that Matt wants me to write down? Or what's the number that I, that I think I need to write down in order to be a good, faithful Christian? No, the question is, just think about the gospel. And then look at what you have and ask yourself the question, how can my giving be generous in light of he who is rich becoming poor so that me who is poor could become rich? And I'm telling you, when we are willing to give generously, it's actually good for us. It's, it's good for us to demonstrate with our financial means that our heart is not locked to the things on earth, but it is locked in heaven. And we are committed to seeing people hear this good news of Jesus, and so we're motivated to give. See, when it comes to money, it's actually good riddance for us. It's good for us. So, so what does your generosity say about you? One of the things I think we need to think carefully about as Christians in this context is like right now, if you give financially to local churches or certain charities, uh, you get a tax benefit for that, right? Which is awesome, which is why we all give in December. Because we can get the tax level a little bit lower. It's great. It's a good stewardship, right? Give and get a tax receipt. It's a win-win, the question I like to ask myself and that I, my wife and I ask ourselves is, what would our giving look like if there was no benefit to us backwards? Would I be more or less generous if the tax benefit didn't exist in Canada? See, I think my temptation would, I'd probably give less, right? But that just shows that my, lo- my heart is locked to the things of this earth. Because what we get back financially shouldn't be the, the determining factor for how much we give. We should be giving because we are committed to seeing the gospel move forward. Secondly, and shorter, I promise. Ridding ourselves of money is also good for others. Philippians four eighteen through 20. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's telling the Philippians, look, because of your generosity, my needs have been supplied. And I know, Paul's saying to the Philippians, that God will also provide for your needs. So Paul is writing to poor, impoverished Philippian Christians, saying that God is going to provide for your needs. So how is that supposed to work out? God's just going to drop the money from the sky, right? That's the way it works, like manna from heaven. That's how he's going to provide for your needs. Well, maybe... But, but the New Testament actually provides an answer for that question. See, in, in the New Testament, it, it's a, it, it, here's my idea I'm going to throw by you that I think the scripture teaches. That God intends to use his people to provide for the needs of his people. 
That Paul can say to the Philippians, your needs will be met, and he believes that to be true. And part of the rationale of why he's saying that is that Paul believes that God intends to provide for the needs of his people through his people. So uh, 2 Corinthians, again, chapter 8, starting in verse 10. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it, which is the giving financially. So now finish doing it well. Keep giving so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I don't mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever whoever gathered little had no lack. Here's Paul writing to rich Corinthians about poor Philippians saying they've been so generous and you have this desire to give and that's good. so, So actually do it like just... Not, don't just be ready, actually put the readiness into action. And, and I'm not saying give to the point where now you're burdened financially, but, but what I'm saying is out of your abundance, you should provide for the needs of others, just like in their abundance, they'll provide for your needs so that there is fairness. And then he quotes the passage in Exodus where the Israelites were out in the wilderness and God provided manna in, in the wilderness so that they would have their daily portion of exactly what they needed, their daily bread. And whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little didn't have any, any want. Everyone had what they needed. Paul is saying here that the way that God intends to meet the needs of his people is through his people. That in the local church, it is our responsibility out of our abundance to provide for the needs of other Christians. So imagine that you're in a sky train and you see two people sitting across from you and there are two people talking about money, which they wouldn't do. So imagine, okay? Pretend. And the one guy's sitting there and he's talking about how he has hundreds of thousands of dollars in his bank account. And the woman beside him is sitting there saying that she's a single mom who's working two jobs who can't afford to pay for her rent this month. And the man looks at her and says, tough break. See ya. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, man, that's not right. It's really too bad. Now imagine that we're not in a sky train, but we're in a local church. And there's two people in a local church. One man who has talked about how he has hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting in a savings account and a single mom who's working two jobs who can't afford for her rent. And the man looks at her and says, sounds like a tough break. See, our response to that is not just that's too bad, but that's unchristian. Because God intends to meet the needs of his people through his people. Not not that you should be burdened because of what you give, but that out of your abundance, you can provide for the needs of others. See, our getting rid of our money is actually good for other people. It's going to provide for for their needs. This is what the local church in the early church actually implemented. Acts 2, verse 44, all who believed were gathered and had all things in common. 
They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4, verse 32, now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Paul, when, when he's writing to the Galatians, he, he's saying, verse chapter 6, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, friends, listen, caring for other Christians is a priority of the local church. God, God intends to meet the needs of his people through his people. Paul can write to the Philippians, God will provide for your needs in Christ Jesus. And part of what that means is that he believes that other local churches will provide for their needs. Man, what a witness this could be to the world, right? Right? That we are people so infatuated with Jesus, so, so committed to his message, so devoted to the others, that when we have an abundance, we give it to those who have need among us because we don't view anything of our own. We, we actually view our whole lives, our, our money, our skills, our everything for the benefit of others. Man, that'd be a fantastic witness to a watching world. But, but in our culture, we buy into the Scotiabank thing, right? Which is you're richer than you think. And by that, what we mean is just take the extra vacation. Buy the extra car. Like, you're richer than you, you can make it work. So, like, accumulate more, right? Walmart, spend, spend less. What is this? Save more. Live better. Like, the, like the, the more that you can have for yourself, the better off. This, this is the cultural viewpoint saying this to you over and over again, and it's coming through the church as well. And yet what the Bible says is that it's actually good for us to rid ourselves of money because it's going to be good for the other. It's an opportunity for us out of our abundance to not just accumulate for ourselves, but to demonstrate to others that we are committed to Jesus and being committed to Jesus means being committed to Jesus' people. God intends to meet the needs of his people through his people. Because the reality is, is that we're actually, as Christians, we're, we're more than friends. We're family. We have a heavenly father. We've been adopted into his family. We are brothers and sisters. And when it comes to family, family takes care of the needs of family. Family doesn't look at their brother and sister and say, sorry, you can't afford rent. But that's okay. I'm just going to go off and do this other thing with the money I could use to help you. I'm going to spend it on myself. That's not what family does. Family says, look, I know you're working hard. Right? 2 Thessalonians 3 tells us, don't, don't just give money to someone who's not willing to work. Let, let them work so that they can actually, you know, earn some things for themselves and be a contributing member of, of the family. So what I'm not saying is this means just give money to anyone who's not willing to work. But if you have people in your midst who are giving it a go, but they just can't afford to live anymore, that our abundance should provide for their need. God, God intends to provide for his people through his people. And... and this is the best part, the motivation for all of this. I'm going to end with this. The motivation for us giving so that the gospel can go forward, so that it demonstrates that, that our heart is pinned to heaven, not pinned to the accumulation of our things. And then the best part about us giving to other brothers and sisters and needs out of what, what, what we can give up, the best part of that is that all of it is a living out of the gospel. 
This reality that Jesus who is rich became poor so that we who are poor could become rich. We are showing with our feet and with our pocketbooks that we actually believe this message to be true. That we've actually pinned our hearts so strongly to the gospel that our money is now something that can flow out of our fingers freely. Because we don't grasp onto it expecting it to provide for us our comfort and our security. We, We open our hands and we trust that in Christ we have our riches. See, this is why the Philippians could give even though they were poor. Is that they knew that in Christ they had everything that they need. They were heavenly minded. They didn't view Jesus as a means to their riches and treasure. The Philippians viewed Jesus as their riches and treasure. See, for as long as we view Jesus as our means to our treasure, we're going to be pinning our hopes to earth. But when we realize that Jesus is our treasure, that, that, that frees us up to be generous, and that provides us with a joy that will exist in every and any circumstance. Friends, I actually think that the refrain of Christian is not give me more money. The refrain of the Christian is give me Jesus. Because of that, because we actually have Jesus, when it comes to our money, Christians can say good riddance. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the way that it shows, uh, it shines a flashlight into the, the parts of our life and our culture and our heart that we so often hide from you. And by your spirit, you prompt us to ask the question, if, if, if we actually treasure Jesus above all things, and if that's going to work itself out in the way that we live our lives, Father, I confess I'm not as generous as I ought to be that I put too much hope in my money. Father, I pray that you would help me not be that way. That out of a motivation for, for, for following Jesus and in thankfulness to the gospel that though he was rich, he became poor so that I who was poor could become rich, that I would have my hands opened up and money would come out of it to provide for the needs of others and to see your gospel go forward. We pray all these things for your fame and in Jesus' name. Amen.